Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with Carson Hess. Carson is one of the co-founders of Development AI. They are a Boston-based data mapping firm that is focused on providing solutions to real estate developers. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. We're live. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, tell, tell the listeners a little bit more about you and your career leading up to this point. Yeah. So I, the biggest thing with regards to my career is that I co-founded a company called Development AI. Um, I left my full-time corporate job in about May of this year, uh, where I was basically working in construction management on large transit infrastructure projects. And through the course of networking, I, I ended up meeting an individual who was a software developer that had an uncle who is a property developer in Austin, Texas. And we came up with this idea. Well, he came up with this idea for developing some algorithms that could figure out what could be built on any particular parcel, looking at things like zoning maps and zoning restrictions. And from there, we took it to a couple of Boston developers that um, really found some value in what, the, what it was that we were doing. And from there, we left our full-time jobs around spring of this past year and have been working on it full-time ever since. Um, my background is actually on the engineering side. I, I studied mechanical engineering and energy systems when I was going through my undergraduate at Rutgers. And then I worked a little bit as a real estate agent in New Jersey. Um, didn't quite have the professional skills that were necessary or, or the really the desire to be successful in that particular space. And instead, went full-time into construction management once I graduated from Rutgers in 2017, I moved out to Denver and worked on a project out there for about eight months and then got shipped out to Boston for a, a different project under the same company and worked there for about two and a half years. Um, really, through that job, learned a lot about how to negotiate, how to build relationships, especially with very regulatory agencies. So in the product that I was working on in Boston, I was working in conjunction with the Massachusetts Transportation Authority, um, Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, the MBTA, which is the fifth largest transportation authority in the entire United States. And through that process, just really learned how to keep things moving in the right direction, regardless of how difficult the agency may have been to work with. Um, it was a highly regulatory environment. Our contract alone had somewhere like 50 or 100,000 pages to it. And my job was basically to pick through that contract and identify contradictions and then understand what that meant for my team. Um, spent a lot of time working in contracts and also on the engineering side and on the construction management side. And, um, you know, really just learned how to keep things moving no matter what. Um, my ability to go through these sort of really dense contract documents really parlayed well into my current role with Development AI, um, basically just working through all the different zoning codes and understanding where the knots are and how to provide a lot of value to our clients in the back end through um, a, a pretty detailed understanding of each of those zoning codes. So we're going to go. Uh, we're going to go a little bit more in detail about your your current company, Development AI. But okay. on a side note, uh, I was living in Boston in 1999 uh, when they were right in the middle of the big dig. Um, so uh, Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority is that right? MBTA that uh, yeah. they had a uh, they had 
quite a big project on their hands back then. And it was a nightmare trying to get around uh, downtown Boston. Uh, oh yeah. But oh, it absolutely. was, I, I'm sure it was, that was a, a, an engineering feat of itself. Um, mm-hmm. So on the engineering side, how, how are you, how have you been able to apply your engineering background to what you're doing today? That's a great question. Um, you know, first, uh, as just another side note, the project that I was working on was the Green Line extension, which actually was supposed to be completed as part of the big dig. Um, and then basically, they, my understanding is that they ran out of money, ran out of time. And they, uh, I think that the project originally came to be because the city of Cambridge or city of Somerville sued the, I think it was Mass DOT um, to get that project actually done. So that's just kind of a fun side note. But, um, you know, I think that my engineering background has definitely helped with what I do currently. Um, I think that I was a little bit different from some of my engineering colleagues, just in the sense that I definitely enjoyed the more personal side of things than I did, uh, really the, the sort of nitty gritty engineering work, the, the sort of calculations and the design and all that kind of stuff. Um, even when I was in college, I spent the majority of my extracurricular energy, uh, as a co-lead for a project through engineers without borders. And even in that, I wasn't really interested so much in like the technical side of things. I was much more interested in the management and the um, people side of things and really just providing a valuable experience for my members and also for the communities in which we were, we were empowering. Um, so from that perspective, I mean, engineering definitely taught me how to solve problems. It taught me how to think very critically. Um, I took five semesters of calculus and I don't remember probably any of it, but what I do remember is just the sort of rigorous framework through which to look at problems. Uh, so really being able to break problems down into step-by-step step and really kind of reduce those problems um, into their most basic components and then start tackling them one in one. Um, so yeah, I think that it, it ultimately just taught me how to solve problems and think critically. So now you incorporate AI or artificial intelligence into your, your business. Uh, talk to us a little bit about development AI and how that has eased the process of uh, breaking what you just mentioned, these, these mm-hmm. small parts of the, the, the engineering and development process into, I'm sure, even smaller, uh, smaller pieces. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we're really in the business of solving problems for real estate developers and taking what is a 20-step process and solving maybe the first 10 steps of that pretty quickly. Um, the typical development process, you know, it starts with site selection, and that's really kind of our bread and butter. Um, developers will have to go through the zoning map and understand where there are parcels that are zoned favorably. So, for instance, we work with a lot of residential developers, so they're looking for places where they can build, for instance, a multifamily development by right. Um, that starts with looking at the zoning map and just really understanding where the multifamily zones. The second piece is then looking back at the zoning code and saying, okay, so I know that I have all these different multifamily zones. Um, what are the uses that are allowed in that particular zone? Maybe I don't want to build a multifamily. Maybe I want to build a three-unit project instead. Uh, maybe I want to build a, a multifamily project that has a certain density. Um, I have to then go through the zoning code and figure out what the restrictions are with the project that I want to build, uh, whether it be a use restriction, like we just mentioned, or whether it's some sort of dimensional restriction. So like front yard, side yard, rear yard, height, port area ratio is another big one. Parking is another big one. Um, what development AI does is that we take the zoning maps, whether they're in some sort of online GIS format, which is pretty common in cities like Boston or New York or Philadelphia, um, but we also can take PDF zoning maps, which are common in some of the, the suburban markets, and we can ingest those into our platform so that they look similar, or rather they look the same across any different city. So a zoning map in our system, whether it be Boston or, for instance, Lynn that, or Cambridge that has a PDF zoning map 
it's going to look exactly the same in our system. The so you're piece, able to, sorry to interrupt, but you're, you're able to uh, take these GIS maps um, that are a little bit more uh, sophisticated in, like you said, big cities like Boston and New York, Chicago, LA, uh, but in a smaller town or a smaller city that may not have that, that sophisticated platform, you would be able to import in whatever format it is, PDF or JPEG format, uh, these, these, uh, these zoning plans into your platform. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So in our system, well, with a PDF, you have a picture of the city and it's broken down into segments. Really zones are just exactly what the name implies. Um, there are some boundaries that have, that are represented by a certain color. So for instance, the single family zone in Cambridge might be a red, or then the two family zone might be a little bit different of a shade of red. And typically they're bounded by streets. Um, another difficulty with the PDF zoning maps is a lot of times they're not oriented correctly. So if you're looking at a zoning map on the one hand, then Google Maps on the other hand, you'll notice that there might be a little bit of a translation in the PDF map that makes it really difficult to understand exactly where you are. A lot of times you'll be zooming into these streets on the PDF map and trying to understand where this, this tiny difference in a shade of red might mean that you can do something versus not be able to do something, and then um, try to translate that back into Google. Um, in our platform, we take those individual discrete zones, import them into our system, and make sure that, they're, that the rotation is correct so that it's, it's all the same. And then you can filter on those different zones. So if you wanted to, for instance, just see the business district zone or just see the residential one family zone, those are all things that we can do within our platform. Um, the second piece, and this, this ties into the answer to your question is, with the use tables, if you wanted to build anything from a bakery to a warehouse, to a single family, to a multifamily, in our system, you can actually filter these zones of interest based on your intended use. So if you wanted to, for instance, build a bakery and you wanted to see all the zones that allowed that by right, then in our platform, these zones that allow that use by right in a particular city would then light up, indicating that these are zones that you want to drill into a little bit further. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm a developer and I, I approach you about helping us um, find out the, the highest and best use of a specific piece of land, um, or I'm using your services to, to find those uh, those parts of a city or a town or a, a municipality where I want to develop um, the highest and best use project in a specific area. How do you factor in? When am I calling you to bring you on to my team? Yeah. So thus far, we've really talked about the acquisition side of the platform. Um, and just a couple more notes on that. You know, once we've, it'll tie back into the answer. Um, once we have identified the zones that are of interest, we then link into the assessor database to see a visualization of how the different parcels in that particular zone are currently being used. So for instance, if we're looking at a three-family zone and then we enter into that three-family zone in our platform, you'd be able to see a basically a visual representation of how those different properties are currently being used. So whether it's a one-family or a two-family or a three-family or even like residential land, um, we can also identify opportunities for assemblage. So we visualize adjacent common ownership. And then once we identify the properties that are, that are of interest, whether it be like a single family that's in a three family zone um, or a piece of vacant residential land, we then, since we're integrated in with the assessor data, we can see who owns that parcel. We then finally have a way to get the 
contact information of that property owner and then also run it through a third-party verification. Um, a lot of developers, a lot of investors that spend energy and time and money trying to get off-market deals, uh, phone numbers, accurate contact information is typically a very big pain point for them. So we run it through a third-party verification service. Um, to bring it back to, to the answer to your question, you know, we talked about the acquisition side and the sourcing side. Um, it's really a platform for developers that want to go for off-market properties, uh, that want to have a continuous stream of off-market deals. Um, we also do work in kind of a one-off capacity. If someone brought a property to us and they just wanted to get some information on the zoning on that really quickly, we offer that as a service as well. But typically, we'll be looking to work with firms that have someone that's more or less dedicated to acquisitions that can really live in that tool and um, manage their workflow from there. The second side of it, you know, aside from the acquisition side, is the entitlement risk side. So in a city like Boston, for instance, you know, on the acquisition side, we're really talking about helping developers find opportunities that are buy right. So that way they can just apply for their building permit and more or less just get the permit right there. Um, in Boston and a lot of major metros in particular, the zoning codes are so old and antiquated and it'd be so difficult for the municipalities to change them that they have some sort of variance process or some sort of plan unit development process or PUD process or a special permit process that requires these developers to not only work closely with the community to get agreement on all sides about what this project's actually going to be and what it's going to look like, but they then have to appear before some kind of board, um, whether that's a zoning board or a planning board, some sort of municipal board that ultimately has the final say over whether or not you can get your building permit. In the course of going through these entitlements, you know, you're paying for attorneys, you're paying for architects, you're paying for a lot of different expensive professionals that we're not looking to replace. But what we do do is we collect a lot of data on what sort of projects are getting approved and denied, then providing some insight into why they get approved or denied. Um, as part of that, you know, we're showing which attorneys and architects are performing the best in these individual markets. We're showing um, which offices of political officials are more likely to show up in support and opposition of specific projects. And then we're also showing what parties are showing up in support and opposition. So which neighbors are showing up in support and opposition. The idea is that if you're a developer that's living in our tool and sourcing deals, you then have this extra layer of research where if you can't get a project by right, you can find not only the team that can help you get this project done with minimal entitlement risk, but also in the area geographically that's, that's more favorable towards development, that has a pretty favorable appetite towards um, larger scale development projects. So do you focus on any particular asset class or, or are you able to provide the, the same high level service in, uh, in, in various asset classes? That's a great question. You know, we really work across all the different asset classes and all across the spectrum of land use needs. Um, just to give some examples of some of the products that we worked with, we worked with obviously a lot of residential developers that are looking for these sort of single family teardowns in higher density zones. But we've also worked with industrial developers that are looking for existing office space that might be distressed because of COVID-related impacts. We've worked with um, an RV home park slash mobile home park developer that was looking for places in Colorado that could build their sites by right. And we've also worked with um, energy companies in the greater New York City market that are looking for basically land leases to uh, help with peak energy demand. So because we're combing through the zoning code and we're going through each individual use case, we can find pretty much anything across the land use spectrum. Talk to me a little bit about the, the biggest challenge that you and your, your developer clients face when putting together a compelling case to, uh, to be able to develop a particular 
project on a particular piece of land? What's that biggest challenge that you guys face? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the biggest challenge that our clients face from what we hear in our interactions with them is really trying to come to that sort of consensus with the neighborhood. You know, the best developers are the ones that are able to build those deep relationships with the community or hire the right professionals that do have those sort of embedded relationships with the community and then find something that works for both sides. You know, um, in the case of something that's by right, you can kind of, as long as you're abiding by the book, you can kind of build whatever it is that you, that you want to build. But in the cases of a, of a project in a place like Boston, where they have this sort of special process, it's really going to be a function of what you can agree to with the community. It's such a community driven process that it needs buy-in from all sides. And the difficulty there is that there's a lot of differing incentives. You know, there's the developers that are trying to build as much as possible because their profit is going to be based on how many square feet they can build and ultimately sell or operate. And then on the neighborhood side, you know, not every, and I can totally understand the sentiment. It's like, you wouldn't necessarily want a property that's going to encroach too close to yours or be too dense or take away parking spots via curb cuts or, you know, cast some sort of shadow on your property because it's too tall. So the best developers are going to be the ones that are able to bring those two sides together the most efficiently and the, the quickest, because ultimately, you know, you're dealing with holding costs and uh, professionals that are on retainage. So um, the biggest challenge, though, is just getting those two sides to align. Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge is getting everybody on board, the, the, the community boards, the, you know, the, the politicians. If, you have, if, if, you're, if you're developing a, a large-scale project like that, um, you know, the, smaller, the smaller projects that I've done, uh, mostly on the, the brokerage side of, of mm-hmm. the, the, the process, is uh, I- including a, uh, a, a community space component that uh, in exchange, the developer is going to um, have a decrease in his in his um, uh, in in his taxes. Um, yeah. And then the second challenge is, or the second pitch, I guess, would be: um, Is this project going to uh, to bring jobs into uh, this specific community? Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. The the biggest concession that we see is really on affordability or even just decreasing unit count. Um, you know, I've, I've worked the most closely, even though we do do things across the land use spectrum, I've worked the most closely with multifamily developers in Boston. And the biggest concessions are really around density. You know, a lot of times we'll see that developers will start out with a request for, say, seven or eight units. Then by the time it actually gets to the zoning board, um, it's maybe a proposal for four or five units, whatever the, the numbers may justify. In some cases, if they can't come to that consensus, they might actually just withdraw the project altogether. But, um, you know, aside from the decrease in unit count, the other concession is really affordability. Uh, The city of Boston has an inclusionary development policy where anytime you're going over nine units, uh, you basically have to add in an affordable unit. Um, And so that is another concession that, that we see as well. A lot of times it could be like a proposal, for instance, for seven or eight units, but then they have an affordable one just because that's what the neighborhood is expecting. Um, other neighborhoods, like for instance, Jamaica Plain, which is kind of in the, the southern core of Boston, they have much more rigorous standards and expectations around affordability than some of the other neighborhoods. Um, so that's the other piece is that's really kind of neighborhood specific. And that's why having that sort of insight about what projects have gone before you and what sort of um, agreements they've had to come to is really important in mitigating that entitlement risk and getting your project approved in, t- in a timely manner. So give us your 30 second elevator pitch. Why? do developers need to have you on their team? Yeah, it's a great question. It ultimately comes down to sourcing more and better deals that have less entitlement risk. 
Um, and it's pretty much as simple as that. That's great. Uh, we're going to conclude this episode with the hard hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our uh, guests. Um, the first question I always ask Carson is what is your why? Yeah, my why is I've always been extremely interested in how cities grow and develop. And with regards to real estate, what makes certain areas more desirable than others? So looking at the factors of like population growth and job growth, obviously on the more macro scale, but then on the more micro scale, it's what sort of developments are going on. You know, anytime I drive past a development project, I mean, I'm also how I got into real estate is because I've been more interested in the investing side. And then this is just kind of, you know, fate or whatever we want to call it. Um, I've always been super interested in seeing development projects and then thinking, man, like I would love to be that property that's a couple doors down. That's going to be able to reap the benefits of that. Um, or even just be the developer that's doing it. You know, I've always been very interested in how cities grow. And I think longer term, that's where development AI is going to be able to provide a lot of insight around this sort of development activity that's happening on the macro level and then also at the, at the micro level. Um, on, on a side note, have you been involved uh, personally as a, as a sponsor or co-GP um, on any projects um, that you've been able to utilize your platform? Um, not that I've been able to use the platform in particular, but prior to co-founding Development AI, I actually did invest as a limited partner in a ground-up development project just outside of Boston in a city called Chelsea. Um, and naturally, that was the first developer that we brought the project to, uh, that we brought Development AI to, and he gave us some really tremendous feedback and is still a, a very good friend of ours. Um, and then after I quit my corporate job, I did roll over my 401k funds into a self-directed IRA and invest in, in a project for a developer that we know in Boston as well. Um, none that we've sourced through the platform I've invested in personally, but um, have served as an LP on two different projects now. Nice. Well, there's always time to do that down the road. Yeah. Um, next question is, uh, what, is there, has there been a book or uh, another piece of media that you've, that you've consumed that is, has uh, significantly added value to your life or your business? Yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, up until probably about a year ago, my favorite book was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, until I read this book, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, that book is all about startups and about building the future. And it just kind of turns everything that we would believe to be true on its head. Um, I think that the best books really kind of mess up your life. <laughs> and I think that Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, it, it sent me on this trajectory of going into real estate. And now Zero to One by Peter Thiel has just kind of made me reconsider my approach to business and to um, employment in general and has really just provided a ton of value to me in the way of just always trying to think of things differently and outside of the box. You're a young guy, but you have some work experience under your belt. But if you were to go back to your 21, 22-year-old self just graduating from Rutgers, uh, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give him knowing what you know now? Yeah, I love that question. My biggest piece of advice definitely would be to be unafraid to stand up to people. Um, that's especially important in construction as a young person. You know, it's very difficult coming out of college with an engineering degree at 21 years old to go and tell a 50-year-old foreman the way that a project needs to be done. Um, and so I was definitely afraid to kind of push back when people would um, present that sort of adversity to me. I think that what I would tell the younger version of myself is, you know, don't be afraid to stand up and ask for more, you know, whether it's even like negotiating for a salary, I think that you'd be amazed and shocked. And I'm sure that you see this as well. Like you'd be very shocked about what people will give you when you just ask. So um, don't be afraid to stand up and ask for, for what you think you deserve. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good advice. I mean, what's what's the worst that somebody can say? No, okay, then you, you just move on, right? You're not you're never going to know if you uh, if you don't ask, right? Absolutely, yeah. And on that same note, you know, I have always made it a point to every time I fly, I always fly economy because I'm uh, pretty mindful of my dollars. But I always ask for an upgraded seat, and the reason that I do that is because, like you said, the worst they're going to say is no. Best case scenario, which actually is like 50% of the time, they'll actually say yes and I'll get a, a better seat. <laughs> but just being unafraid to ask is really the point of that exercise and not being afraid of whatever sort of embarrassment or shame you may feel when somebody says no. Yeah, that's all great advice. Uh, Carson, how can our listeners learn a little bit more about you and Development AI? Yeah, so the best place is probably on LinkedIn. We have a company page. Um, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. It's just, just my name, obviously. Then on Instagram, I'm also very active at Carson underscore Hess. Awesome. All great info. Carson Hess, thank you so much for joining us today and adding your value. We greatly appreciate it. Nick, thanks so much for having me. It's been been an honor. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.